everybody. Welcome to um, Redemption Church this morning. Uh, my name is Reggie, and uh, I'm one of the pastors, one of the elders here at Redemption. And uh, today is, is Father's Day, as we've already mentioned. Uh, for some, Father's Day is a day of celebration and joy. And uh, we recognize as well that for some, Father's Day is a day of pain and heartache and uh, despair. And so I just want to say, if you're here this morning, um, and Father's Day is a joyful occasion for you, if you're here this morning and Father's Day is not a joyful occasion, it's something else altogether, I um, just want to remind you that Jesus meets us right where we are in our celebration or in our pain and despair, and uh, that there is good news to be found in Jesus. And if you're celebrating this morning, we're celebrating with you. Um, and if you're hurting this morning, we're hurting with you as well. Uh, to get started, uh, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to move on from there. But let's pray together. Holy Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to be together. Thank you for the ways in which we've already been reminded from your word, um, from the songs that we've sung, from the prayers that we've heard, that, God, you have done something incredible on our behalf, and God, we thank you for that. And now I pray that as we look into your word over the next few minutes, that you would simply use me as an instrument of your grace and mercy, an instrument of the gospel. I recognize that my words are meaningless, God, but your words are not. And so I pray that we would hear your words, that you would speak to our hearts and minds, that the Holy Spirit would be at work convicting us and drawing us to you and enlightening your word. God, we ask all this in the name of your precious Son, our Savior, Jesus. Amen. We are and have been continuing through the book of Acts uh, for a while now, and, and, and we'll keep going through the book of Acts for the rest of the summer. Uh, this morning, we're looking at Acts chapter 17, and we're at the point in Acts where the gospel is going to the ends of the earth. If you remember at the beginning of Acts, Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Well, the gospel is going to the ends of the earth. And so that's where we find ourselves this morning in Acts chapter 17. I'm going to read Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34. So if you have your Bibles and want to read along, you can do that. I think it'll be on the screen as well. But Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34. Now while, Paul, now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. 
nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, even some of your poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Acts 17 is a pretty famous chapter in the book of Acts and in all of Scripture. It's the... um, it's, it's sort of used as a model for the modern uh, missional movement of how you go into a culture that you are not necessarily uh, aligned with and present the gospel in a way that can be understood, that can be proclaimed in a way that can be understood. So in Acts chapter 17, at the beginning of Acts chapter 17, Paul and Timothy and Silas, they've moved from Philippi to Thessalonica. They've moved west from Philippi. Uh, They go to Thessalonica, they go to the synagogues, they're uh, proclaiming the gospel, teaching about Jesus. All of that results in some mob violence because Paul is accused of uh, teaching strange things. So Paul has to leave town. He leaves Thessalonica, he goes a little further west to a place called Berea, which is not far away. And there he again uh, begins to proclaim the gospel, working in the synagogues, wherever else he can talk. And the people from Thessalonica come over to Berea and cause some more trouble. So then Paul has to head south all the way through Greece to get to Athens. And so he's on the coast in the city of Athens by himself. He had to go without Silas and Timothy. So the text says that Paul is walking around in Athens and he's provoked by the idols and the religious structures that he sees in the city of Athens. Athens... um, Even today, there are ruins all over Athens, and you know about the Acropolis and the Parthenon and all these temples and all these things that still exist that you can go and visit today. And so Paul is there when these things are in a state of magnificence, and he's walking around, and the text says that he is provoked by idols. This word for provoked, um, or whatever word is used if you're looking at some other version than I am, it literally means he threw a fit, like internally had a fit over all the idols and everything that he saw. And so as Paul's usual um, method, he goes to the synagogues and begins to proclaim the gospel there. He ends up in the marketplace. Um, When you think about the marketplace in Athens, though, I don't want you to think like uh, he went to Target. Um, It's more like he went to downtown where there is the marketplace, there are government offices, there are civic offices, there's uh, doctors, I mean, every part of life that you 
would need to have access to is in the marketplace. And so he's in the place of business and the place of life, and he's interacting with people there. And he runs into some philosophers. And just real quick, um, this doesn't do everything they believe justice, but the text tells us that he sees or that he runs into some philosophers, some of which are the Epicureans, just so that you know. The Epicureans uh, held to a polytheistic philosophy, a polytheistic view of life that said if the gods even exist, if they do exist, they're far away and they're unconcerned with daily life. And so your only purpose was to make life as good for you as possible, eat, drink, and be merry, and they meant it, right? Stoics, this was a pantheistic philosophy. They were sort of opposite from the Epicureans in the sense that they believed that God and the world were the same thing, that God was and is in all things. They ultimately believed that the world would end in a ball of fire and that everything would start back over and happen just like it had happened before. So it's sort of a cynical view on life that things are going to always uh, occur just like they always have. There's no way to get out of it but through death. And one of the things the Stoics said is the door is always open for you, you to leave. And what they meant by that is through death. Paul is called by these philosophers and by other people in the marketplace a babbler. The word literally means in Greek... It means a bird that picks up seeds and spits them back out without digesting them. It's a derogatory term. It's meant to indicate somebody who rambled on about ideas they picked up from other people, but they didn't really understand them. They call him a babbler. Think about a chicken walking around in the yard. More specifically, think about the weird little chicken in Moana. You know what I'm talking about? That's what they're calling Paul. And so Paul is in the marketplace, and he's dealing with these philosophers, he's dealing and seeing the idols and talking to all these people, and ultimately Paul is charged with preaching foreign divinities. So you're preaching foreign divinities, which would have been uh, something that would have gotten him kicked out of Athens, if it were true. And so that lands him at the Areopagus. Now, the Areopagus um, is essentially two things. It's both a hill and a court in Athens. The Areopagus literally means the hill of Ares. Um, if, if, if you're familiar with Greek mythology, Ares was the Greek god of war. The Roman equivalent is Mars. So where Paul is at right now is sometimes called Paul, Mars Hill or Ares Hill or the Areopagus. Um, it's called that because in mythology or in Greek mythology specifically, this is the hill where Ares was tried for murder, um, specifically for the murder of Poseidon's son. In actual Athenian life, there was a court that met on the Areopagus. That court was established centuries before Paul is in Athens. Originally, it was established to deal with murder and murder trials. By the time that Paul is there. Part of the reason this court exists is to try matters not only of murder, but of justice and what is right and what is wrong. And so Paul is taken before this court. And so when Paul is taken here, he's essentially on trial. He's not going to a meeting of a philosophical society to debate 
whether Christianity is true or not. He's going on trial to see whether he gets to stay in Athens or not. That's probably where this is going. And this scene from Acts where Paul both defends the gospel and shows the insufficiencies of Greek thought and Greek mythological uh, idol worship, this famous scene from Acts has led to several churches, even in our day, being named Mars Hill. If you're familiar with Mark Driscoll, he started a church called Mars Hill. Rob Bell started a church called Mars Hill. This chapter in Acts has had an impact on a lot of people. Just so you know as well, there's an ancient Greek play called the Eumenides, which is essentially about justice and about the foundation of the Areopagus. And there's a particular scene in this play. It's one of the earliest Greek plays in the Greek uh, canon. And there's a scene in this play where Apollo is speaking at the Areopagus, and he says essentially that when the blood of a man is spilt on the ground, there can be no resurrection. And Paul ends this famous speech to the Areopagus saying, This man that I'm telling you about has been raised from the dead. Starting in verse 22, Paul starts what is both a defense of the gospel and an attack on Stoicism and Epicureanism and their idol worship. In verse 22 and 23, he begins to build on this idea that the Athenians are very religious. I can see that you're religious. You even have an altar to an unknown God. In verse 24, though, Paul shifts, and he begins to attack their idol worship, their mythological gods, by stating what we already know about God, that he doesn't live in temples built by the hands of men. Now, I want you to get the picture, right? Because when Paul says that, he's standing on the Areopagus where this court meets, and he's looking out at the Acropolis, where all of these temples and where all of this idol worship happens. I don't know if we have the picture. Were we able to do that? No, maybe not. There we go. So this hill right here in the front is the Areopagus, and he's looking straight over at the Parthenon. He's looking at the Temple of Nike. He's looking at several temples, and he says to them, God doesn't live there. And what he's essentially saying is, you have got it all wrong. Two of the most important structures in Athens were the Parthenon and the Temple of Nike. And Paul is looking at them and he's looking at these other temples and he's telling these people that your worship and your way of life is categorically a mistake. It seems that Paul is actually walking a fine line between building a bridge to their culture and undermining their culture at the very same time. Paul goes on to attack the idolatry of the Athenians in verses 25 through 29, as well as both the Epicureans and the Stoics. And it's important to see this. He he continues to demonstrate the inconsistency of their idol worship, but he also confronts their philosophies to the Epicurean who thinks that God is uninvolved in daily life if God exists at all. He says, God is not far from you. To the Stoic who believes that God is in the world and God is everything, he says, no, God created you. 
God is transcended and he created everything, including you and including everybody else. And we all come from the same place. And then in verse 30, Paul points out that what the Athenians thought, their way of worship, their way of life is actually based on ignorance. Right? That, it, it took a lot of courage for Paul to stand there and say these things. He says that the creator God is calling for your repentance and that it is available through Jesus, that he has fixed a day of judgment for all people through Jesus. Jesus is the one who's going to bring about that day of judgment. And God raised him from the dead to prove that he is going to do this in the place that was supposedly founded with Apollo saying, when blood is spilt, there can be no resurrection Paul is saying Jesus was raised from the dead, and that's proof that God is going to do what he said he was going to do, that God can save you and that God will bring judgment and that God will eventually set everything the way it's supposed to be. Overall, I want you to see that what Paul has done is that he's been accused of preaching foreign divinities. And instead, Paul uses their own idolatry their own worship of mythological gods to say that he's speaking about a God that they say they worship already, the unknown God. He reminds them of their idols. He, re- reminds, he uses their own poets to show them that they actually desire to worship the right thing, but they're not there yet. He says these are signposts that point you to the real creator, God. And instead of the narrative that they're working from, Paul gives them the the narrative of God working through Jesus on their behalf to make sense of the very worship and philosophies that have not gotten them to where they need to be. Paul tells them they are picking up signals, they're picking up signposts, but they're interpreting them incorrectly. Their idol worship doesn't give them the right story. Their idol worship actually oppresses them. Their vain philosophies don't help them. They actually hold them back. And in an attempt to make sense of life, they are instead enslaving themselves. Paul leads them to step back from the way they've misinterpreted everything and instead gives them a way to rightly understand this unknown God. That's what happens in Acts chapter 17. There's a lot to see in Acts chapter 17. It's an incredible passage of scripture. But here's what I want for us today. And it's essentially the same thing that Paul was calling these Athenians to hear when Paul was standing on the Areopagus. I I want us to take inventory of and to become enraged by our own idols and our own vain philosophies. I want us to see their deficiencies as opposed to the sufficiency of Christ. I want us to celebrate the greatness of God and the resurrection of Jesus because Jesus is better. When Paul saw these impressive structures in Athens, they did not intimidate him, nor did they seduce him. They provoked him. Right? When you see the idolatrous structures in our own society and in our own lives, what is your reaction to that? If you're 
not provoked by the idolatry like Paul was, if you're apathetic to the fact that things and people and ideas other than God are being worshipped, that people are being led astray by worshipping the wrong things, well, you might be out of touch with the gospel. But if you were provoked by the idolatry and just get angry and say, to heck with our culture, to heck with our world, you might be out of touch in the, with the gospel in another direction entirely. Paul was provoked by the idolatry, but he didn't run from the people of Athens. He ran to them and pointed them to Jesus. And that's the kind of people that we need to be, people who are deeply aware of our culture, able to dialogue with it, but untainted by it. It's easy to sit back, regardless of what viewpoint you're coming from, to sit back and to get angry about where culture is headed. But we're not actually listening to what people are saying if all we're doing is getting upset. Our culture is crying out for God, but just like the Athenians, they are missing the signpost. And if we're honest, the idols of our culture, the idols of our culture and world that so easily seduce people seduce us as well. So we need to take inventory of the idols in our lives and examine our hearts and see where we are worshiping counterfeit gods and idols and functional saviors rather than Jesus. In reaction to that call, you might be sitting there thinking that in our modern American context, idols are not prevalent because it's true that we don't see temples on each street dedicated to mythological deities or to communal idols for a city. But think with me about the temples and idols and mythological gods in Athens that Paul was saying was insufficient. They were just a means to get something that you wanted. Mythological gods were just um, lords over limited spheres of life. If you think about the two most impressive structures that Paul was looking out at from the Areopagus when he's talking to the court here, the Parthenon and the Temple of Nike. The Parthenon was dedicated to the goddess Athena, the goddess of wisdom, the goddess of politics. And so if you wanted to be smart, if you wanted to have wisdom, you worshipped Athena, the temple of Nike. Nike was the goddess of victory, worshipped by athletes and soldiers and Michael Jordan. That last part's not true. Is Zach in the room? Zach, MJ's the goat, by the way, not LeBron. <laughs> Greatest of all time. But if you wanted victory, you worshipped at the temple of Nike, the gods of Mythology, the gods of Athens were just gods to get you something. Tim Keller says that a counterfeit god is anything so central and essential to life that should you lose it, you feel that life would hardly be worth living. An idol is anything that has such a controlling um, position in your heart that you spend your passion and energy and emotion and resources and money on it without even thinking about it. Right, an idol, a counterfeit God, a functional savior is anything more important to you 
than Jesus. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than Jesus does. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give you. It's anything that you can look at and say, if I have that, then I will have meaning and security and value and significance. And so to take inventory of our idols is important to examine our hearts, to know what has our attention other than Jesus. And I would say that as we examine our hearts, let me give you four areas of your life that I would encourage you to take a moment and examine. They're this, our imagination, our money, our significance, and our emotions. Stay with me on this. Our imagination, the true God of your heart, is what your thoughts effortlessly go to when there is nothing else demanding your attention. What do you daydream about constantly? Not I'm not talking about just one or two daydreams, but what do you daydream about constantly? What do you habitually think about to get joy and comfort and peace in the privacy of your heart? What, what things do you develop potential scenarios about? Career advancement, having more material things, having more money, having a relationship with a particular person. When we examine those things, we might see what we're looking at as a functional savior, our money and our stuff. Here's another area we need to examine. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And it's true that your money flows most effortlessly toward your heart's greatest desire. The mark of an idol is that you spend too much money on it and that you have to exercise self-control when it comes to that thing. You may not look at that thing as something you worship, but it becomes a functional savior when you pursue it above all else. Our significance, right? It's important for us to discern how we respond to unanswered prayers and frustrated hopes and frustrated goals and not getting the thing that we think we need most of all. If you ask for something and you don't get it, you may become sad and disappointed, and that's normal. And in most cases, you just move on and say, hey, that's life. But when you pray and you work for something and you don't get it and you respond with anger or despair, then you may have found your real God. And furthermore, if you're willing to sin to get that thing that you think you need, if you're willing to sin to avoid losing something you already have, you might have found what it is that you worship. If you turn to something for rescue and peace other than Jesus, then you might be identifying the idol in your life. Finally, our emotions. Look for your idols at the bottom of painful emotions, especially those that never seem to lift and never seem to go away. If you're angry, ask, is there something here too important to me, something I am telling myself I have to have at all costs, and am I angry because I'm not getting it? Do the same thing about fear and despair and guilt and these other strong emotions. Here's the truth about idols. Here's the thing I want you to grasp. It's the thing that I think Paul was indicating to the Athenians and specifically to the Areopagus. Idols will do nothing but enslave you and disappoint you. When Paul tells the Areopagus that God does not live in temples built by man, when he says that God doesn't need to be served by human hands because he is the creator of all things, 
Paul is attacking the very foundation of their belief and their religious system and exposing it as something ridiculous. And we need to expose our own idols and our own counterfeit gods and our own functional saviors as nothing short of insanity. Isaiah chapter 44, there's this story. It's a story about a man who cuts down a tree and heats up his food, cooks his food, and warms himself with one half of the tree. And with the other half of the tree, he makes an idol and bows down and worships it. It's a story that essentially says giving yourself to idols is insanity. Isaiah writes this in response to that story. They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see in their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? And then he says this. I want you to grasp this. He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray. And he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? He feeds on ashes. Worshiping idols is like eating ashes when what you really need is bread. But an idol will make you think that the ashes that you're eating are good for you. Worshiping idols, pursuing counterfeit gods, looking for functional saviors, it's insanity. It's like eating ashes. The problem for all of us, though, is that we have a deluded heart. Isaiah says a, a deluded heart has led him astray. The fall has deluded us all. But the reality is that God created us all to want to worship something. He created us all to want a relationship with him, but we're fallen. And so it's human nature that we seek to worship something because God created people to worship him, to seek after him. To be human is to worship something. And there's something in us that causes us to, to want to worship. There's something in us that calls us to give our hearts to something. But because we're deluded, because we're fallen, because sin has marred us all, because sin has marred everything, we give our hearts to things that will only enslave us and hurt us. When we give ourselves to something created rather than to Jesus, we simply enslave ourselves to thinking that the ashes that we're eating are good for us. Our idols are deficient. But what it's important to hear this morning is that Jesus is better. I, I mentioned it a minute ago, but in Acts 17, 24 through 25, Paul says this, just listen, the God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Jesus, it's recorded in Mark 10, 45, says this, 
For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Right? We, we have Jesus telling us why he came into the world. Jesus, the Son of God, became a Son of Man and lived among us. And why did he do that? Because he needed something from us? No. The words of Jesus are crystal clear. The Son of Man came not to be served. Jesus came to earth and lived a sinless life and died on a cross and rose from the dead, not because he needed us, but because we needed him. What we needed most of all was Jesus. And when we are honest with ourselves, we know that we have neglected and offended God very deeply. Because like Paul says in Romans 1, we have exchanged the truth of God for a lie and have worshipped the creation rather than the creator. We've ignored the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. And Jesus has not been first in our lives. He's not been second or third or fourth. But were it not for Jesus, we are in grave danger because of his righteous justice. So the incredibly good news this morning is that God is so great and so sufficient that he cannot be served as though he needed anything. And Jesus is so great and so valuable that his death in our place is a sufficient ransom to pay all our debt to God. And the question is, will we believe this? Will we receive Christ's work on our behalf as the most precious gift in the world? God sets us right through Jesus and what Jesus has done for us. God gives us right standing because of Christ, not because Christ needed us, but because we needed him. And we receive this peace and acceptance and hope not by working for God, but by trusting in his work for us. Paul ends his time at the Areopagus by focusing on the resurrection because in it, the greatness of God is most on display. The gospel is fundamentally an announcement, not just an explanation. It's an announcement that Jesus Christ has done what we could not do. Jesus Christ came as God in the flesh to save us. And the resurrection is God's assurance that Jesus is our salvation and God will eventually put everything as it should be. And in that, we rejoice because Jesus is better than any idol. As we come to a time of response, let me just ask you again, or let me ask you for the first time, what is it that you are worshiping? Who and what are you worshiping with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and money and resources? What are you pursuing to give you what only God can give? And do you see that Jesus is better. Jesus is better. The idols, the counterfeit gods in our life will do nothing but enslave us. They will be, do nothing but oppress us. They will do nothing but seek to convince us that the ashes we're eating are good for us. But Jesus is better. 
So what are you worshiping this morning? Who are you giving all of your heart to? Because Jesus is better. We're going to enter in a time of response where we get to celebrate the fact that Jesus is better. We're going to enter a time of response where we take communion, and you can come down these outside aisles here, uh, come up and tear off the bread, dip it in the wine or juice, and remember that Christ died for us, that Christ shed his blood for us. And as you tear off the bread and dip it in the wine or juice, we're remembering that Christ's body was broken for us, that his blood was shed for us, and we're proclaiming to one another that we believe it, that it's true because Jesus is better. We're going to have an opportunity to worship through continuing to sing as the band comes back up and leads us in some more songs. We have an opportunity to worship through giving. There's a giving table in the back. We have an opportunity to worship by praying by reflecting on what God has, what God is speaking to us this morning, or by grabbing somebody and praying, whatever it might be. But our time of response is intended for us to continue to meet with Jesus in this place, to recognize that Jesus is better and that God is calling himself to us through Jesus. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll move on from there. God, thank you for the opportunity we've had this morning to hear from your word that Jesus is better. God, may we long for Jesus. May we pursue Jesus above all else. God, may we recognize the foolishness and the insanity of thinking that anything other than what you would have for us is good for us. God, may we we trust in Jesus. May we pursue Christ, may we pursue what you have for us and long for you above all else. God, I pray that because, I pray that Christ would continue to be lifted high in this place, that you would be, that Christ would be lifted up and that you would continue to draw us through Jesus, through his work on our behalf. God, I pray even now as we respond, that you continue to lead us to you. Holy Father, I ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. in his son and they called him Jesus he came to love heal and forgive he lived and died to buy my pardon an empty grave is there to prove my Savior love Because He lives I can face tomorrow Because He lives All fear is gone